Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our series, The Story of the Bible, we'll conclude our overview of Genesis and take a look at the book of Job. So let's go back to the Bible and discover more of the central narrative of God's Word with today's message called, The Fall to the Choosing of a People. Everyone without exception knows there's something wrong with the world. We've all heard of people either in bars or in coffee shops or wherever people gather to discuss ideas, talk about, and solve all the world's problems in about an hour. That includes everything from what's wrong with politics to what's wrong with men or with women, depending upon which gender you belong to, to what's wrong with our culture, to what's wrong with our neighbor living next door, and what's wrong with their children and their dog. Did you know that there's something wrong with everyone? And here's the really bad news including you. And I really mean that. It was the French philosopher Blaise Pascal who said that everyone complains, I quote him, all complain, princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick of all countries, all times, all ages, and all conditions. We complain because we all know that things are not the way they should be. Everything at some fundamental level doesn't work the way it should. Things break. Organisms mutate. Relationships become embittered and disruptive. Diseases kill species. Earthquakes and severe storms sweep away landscapes. Machinery breaks down and corrodes. God seems far away. And eventually, everyone dies. Clearly, things are not as they should be. And intuitively, we know things should be different. And so we try to fix things so that we might be able to make them right. Mechanics fix broken cars and city workers fix broken sewers and politicians fix broken and unhelpful laws and doctors fix broken bodies and psychiatrists fix broken minds. Diplomats and world leaders try to fix global conflicts and wars and constantly we're at work trying to repair that which clearly doesn't work the way it should. But how did things get this way and what is God doing about it? As we've noted, the first great movement of the Bible tells of an altogether glorious God who makes a creation which is good and who makes a man and a woman in his image to be rulers and managers of his creation, exercising sovereignty on his behalf. Everything was as it should be. But from chapter 3 of Genesis to close to the end of the book, the story of the Bible, we find out what's wrong and what God is doing about it. The fascinating thing about the Bible story is that even while sin has entered into the world, God has, one, not given up, and two, still continues to rule, ensuring that the world God has created will do exactly that for which he created it for. Genesis 3 tells the story of the fall. Without going into the details, we know that the original rebellion against God did not originate in the first human pair. Human beings were incited to rebel because of the deception of Satan who comes in the form of a serpent. Essentially, the fall consists of two things. The first is unbelief. God tells the woman that if she were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she will die. The serpent responds by telling her she will not die. In essence, both the man and the woman have a profound choice to make. Whom will they believe? And from the outset, 
The rebellion against God consists in the fact that human beings have decided to disbelieve their creator. Indeed, the serpent takes the matter even further. He tells the woman that God knows that the day they eat of the fruit, they're going to be like God. In essence, he charges God not only with deception, but a deception of the most evil kind. God, he says, would hide from the human pair something that is profoundly good. And they, the man and the woman, decide that they, from this day forward, will believe that God is a liar. And after this, the essence of what's wrong continues to play out in that manner. God speaks truth, and human beings refuse to believe him. The second aspect of the fall is pride. Both the man and the woman come to believe that they will be like God. Indeed, they believe they themselves can become lords of this earth without ever having to submit to the Creator. And so they attempt to become gods in their own right. But then, following the rebellion, we find out what is profoundly wrong with this earth. In the first half of Genesis 3, we are told that God will not allow this challenge to his character and to his ownership of this earth to remain unchallenged. God comes now not to bless, but to curse. You know, sometimes when attempting to retell the Bible story, we we do so by saying that we live in a sin-cursed creation. You know, the sad part of that statement is that it's only half true. Indeed, when we say it that way, I fear we're only telling the story the way we want it to be told, not the way that it's told in the Bible. The Bible says that it is God who cursed the creation. We live in a God-cursed creation. And the order in which the curse is pronounced is fascinating. The first curse is aimed directly against the serpent. And a part of that curse comes in the form of a promise. The seed of the woman will arise and bruise or crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise the heel of the one who is to come. In this curse, there is the expectation that the day of satanic deception and the satanic influence in this world will come to an end. But the curse moves to the woman whose experience both in childbirth and in her relationship to her husband is cursed. The harmonious partnership between men and women is broken. And to the man, his dominion over this earth is disrupted. The earth itself is cursed in that it no longer responds to his rulership in the way that it once did. The ground produces thistles, and his work now becomes painful labor. Everything from that moment on reflects a cursed existence, and yet it reflects the hope that God will act to reverse the curse. Chapter 4 begins with the first birth of the first child. Genesis 4 verse 2 has Eve saying that she has begotten a man with the help of the Lord. The wording might indicate that she believes that the promise means that this is the child who would crush the head of the serpent. But she's so terribly wrong. In time, this very child, the first child of the human race, becomes a murderer as he kills his own brother in jealous rage. As the story then progresses, the violence of the human race progresses as well. Lamech, the last in Cain's line, not only murders like Cain does, but makes a boast of it. If Cain is avenged from anyone who tries to harm him, Lamech boasts that he will himself avenge anyone who tries to harm him 70 times over. He's a savage in his oppression of others. 
But in this description of the human race in which violence reigns, accompanied by powerful warlords who protect their civilization with a force of arms, we also hear the story of grace. Genesis 5 tells the story of Seth, and with his birth, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. What we have in the account is the assurance that God's original plan for the earth has not been abandoned. Human beings created in his image will indeed reign the earth on his behalf, only now we're told that they will be the people whom God has chosen. Genesis 5 tells the story of the increase of the godly line of Seth, and we might here wonder if the storyline of the Bible will simply tell of the increase of the godly line of Seth until they bring the earth under the dominion of men and women who are determined to rule in submission to the altogether glorious God. But here we have the first surprising twist in the plot. In Genesis 6, we find that the godly line of Seth is being threatened by exceedingly powerful and dangerous people like Lamech. And in an attempt to survive, the godly line begins to intermarry with the warlords of the earth in order to try to protect themselves. In consequence, the godly line is extinguished, leaving one man and his family as representatives of God's plan for man and the earth. And so we have a direct intervention of God. Noah is told to build an ark in which he puts the earth's animals and God closes the door with Noah and his family on board. God now sends a flood that utterly wipes out a period in earth's history. God has signaled his intention. He will never allow the godly line to be wiped out. Even if he must wipe out every other human from this earth, as a creator and owner of the earth, he will never relinquish his original intention for this earth. And with that, we might wonder how the world after the flood would be different from before. If Adam and Eve's descendants and the world that followed them degenerated into such chaos, how could we be assured that the state of affairs that once existed would not repeat themselves over and over again? If God is determined never to let the godly seed be wiped out, then perhaps it would become necessary for one flood to follow after the next. But at this point in the story, God again intervenes and assures that the flood will never happen again. With so many interruptions in our lives, including opportunity to travel, we want to share that we are now offering registration for our 2022 Israel experience. This is a bucket list experience like none other an opportunity to travel to the Holy Land, experience so many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, David's Royal Palace, worship at the Garden Tomb, and sail the Sea of Galilee, all under the teaching of Dr. John Neufeld. So plan on joining us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, for the Israel Experience, hosted by Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laughagain's Phil Calloway, and special musical guests. The Holy Land is a spectacular journey of faith. Registration is limited, so call Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash Israel Experience. Thank you. 
After the flood, the descendants of Noah sought to reestablish human civilization. Genesis 11 tells the story of the city they built, Babel. Throughout the human story, Babel, which eventually becomes Babylon, finds its way to the very end of the story, in Revelation, where in chapter 18, verse 2, Babylon is called the dwelling place for demons. When God destroys Babylon, then and only then will the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, and then the great promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 takes his seat and rules in righteousness, and the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But that day has not yet arrived. As Noah's descendants begin to increase in numbers, we find that even though God is determined to never destroy the earth that way again, and yet the thoughts of human hearts are continually centered on those fallen virtues of pride and unbelief. And so rather than adopting the mandate in creation to fill the earth with the glory of God and rule on God's behalf, human civilization remains centered in one city, Babel. And in this place, it would seem that either judgment would fall on it as it had at the time of the flood, or God would intervene and set up his kingdom. But here again, the plot in the story takes a surprising twist. In order to prevent a godless super society from developing, God now acts in two ways. First, he confuses human languages, making it impossible for a super society from ever developing. If the Tower of Babel represents the experiment of building a super society without God, God has acted to prevent it. He will never allow it. And by the way, it's hard here not again to turn our thoughts to the end of this rebellious world. Just before Christ returns, the Antichrist will reign for a brief period of time and do what has been impossible to do since the time of Babel. He will rebuild all the earth into one super society and thus rebuild Babel as a place for the satanic counterplan to Christ. Rather than the earth being ruled by the servants of God, he would have his servants rule on his behalf. But for now, in this time after the flood, God, through his deliberate plan to divide the nations, has prevented what the earth has longed for, one grand worldwide society. The second thing that God does at Babel is that he begins to limit human lifespans considerably. At one time, human beings, although subject to death, might have lived over 900 years, and eventually, God would limit human life dramatically. The accumulation of knowledge and the ability to act on it would thus be bounded by human weakness. And so after Babel, the human race begins to scatter. But before we move on, we're well served to step back. What God accomplished at Babel was to fulfill a covenant or an agreement he made with the human race. In Genesis 9, 8 to 17, God promised the human race that he would make an arrangement in which it would never again become necessary to destroy all life. And what God did at Babel, something that's still in effect today, is his keeping of his word. Now, before we move on to the choosing of Abraham, a word needs to be said about the book of Job and its place in the wider narrative of the Bible. It is impossible to date the actual writing of the book of Job, but the historical events it describes happen sometime after Babel and perhaps around the time of Abraham. Job, as we all know, deals with the issue of God's people and the reality of suffering. Within God's sovereign purposes, suffering is not limited to the ungodly. 
Indeed, it's also felt among those whose way is blameless, who are faithful to their Creator. Job, the most righteous man in the earth in his time, loses his wealth, his family, and finally his health. The book of Job teaches us that God's ways with his own are a, a little more complicated than we might have imagined. He permits suffering for a time for his purposes. But Job also teaches us that in the midst of trials and sufferings, God's people have every reason to continue to trust in a God whose wisdom and grace are greater than we can imagine. Armed with these insights, the story of the Bible now takes the next unexpected turn in the plot line. At this juncture, beginning in the end of Genesis 11, the plot line now suddenly shifts from the global history of the human race to one man, Abram. Abram most likely lived from about 2166 to 1991 BC. His life and the things God established through that one man now profoundly influences about one half of the entire earth's population. That's because there is no monotheism in the world today. That is, there is no belief in one creator God that is not in some way attached to the story of Abraham. Genesis 12, 1-3 has the second great covenant in the Bible. We remember the first one in Genesis 9 when, through Noah, God makes a promise to the human race. He will never destroy all humanity with a flood again. Now God makes the second great promise. Let's read it. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We remember that with Seth, God had established a godly line, but that this godly line was extinguished through intermarriage and the fear of violence. But now God promises a new line, the line of Abraham. He promises him first a land, the land that he will show him. Then he promises him that his descendants will become a great nation. Indeed, this nation will enjoy God's protection. The godly line will not be wiped out. And then finally, God promises Abraham a blessing. His name will be so great that his name will be the source of blessing to the entire earth. How one responds to Abraham will determine one's blessing from God. And with this, God enacts a covenant. A few chapters later, Genesis 15, God meets Abraham and he has cut two animals in half. And then God himself walks among the cut up animals and establishes that his covenant is fixed for all times. Abraham and his seed will be the blessing of the entire earth. And then just as before, the Bible's plot line is filled with surprising twists. Abraham does move to the land that God shows him, but his descendants don't immediately inherit that land and become a great people. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren, unable to have children, and therefore Abraham is challenged to believe God's promises to him apart from what his eyes presently see. And in this, we see how the Bible is working its storyline. Whereas Adam and Eve failed to believe God when he had spoken, Abraham believes God even when God calls him years later to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on an altar. Whereas Adam represents the man who does not believe, Abraham represents the man and the people who will come after him who will believe. 
But believing God is a mighty challenge, for as time marches on, the promises of God are not immediately apparent. Abraham's son Isaac himself marries, and just like Sarah, Isaac's wife Rebecca is also barren and has to rely on God's promise in order to conceive. She finally gives birth to twins, and the two boys become enemies. The younger of the twins, Jacob, is forced to flee from the land that God had promised Abraham, and in the course of time, he arrives back accompanied by a family of 12 sons. God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and the 12 boys become the founders of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Even here, all is not as it should be. Stories of jealousy and betrayal follow. And finally, the family of Abraham is not found as possessors of the promised land, but they are refugees from famine and starvation living as foreigners in Egypt. Joseph, one of the twelve, has been made prime minister of Egypt and works to protect the 70 family members and provides for them a secure place in a pagan land. Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, and Exodus begins with the horrible words that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And as this part of the story of the Bible comes to an end, the reader is left to ponder the key issue that will be the issue in the entire storyline of the Bible. God created this earth as an expression of his majesty, and he created man as his image bearer who will rule on his behalf. Now that those who held on to this promise have been reduced to a family of about 70 living in a foreign land, is the promise of God to be trusted? Will the 70 and those of us who read of this account believe God when he speaks? Stay tuned as we follow the Bible storyline all the way through to the end. John, there seems to be a lot of chaos going on in this message, a lot of things happening, Uh, God dealing with a lot of situations. And even in Job's life, there was a lot of chaos, but there was something underlying which allowed him to maintain his relationship with God. What was that? Yeah, none of us can fulfill God's purpose in our lives until we trust him implicitly. And just like the Bible storyline, our own individual storyline is is filled with surprising twists in which we say, God, how could you have let that happen? And the answer has to be, God, I don't know what this means, but I trust you implicitly. That's how we find our purpose in life. Trust in the Lord our God. Thanks, John. What an incredible narrative as we discover the beginning of the story of man. An alarming story in so many ways, yet God still has an ongoing purpose and plan. Well, we have much to look forward to in the days ahead with this series, The Storyline of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Neufeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. 
Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.